Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I talk to an ex-probation officer and now Keele University lecturer about our PhD study that looked into the subject of children's pathways into offending. My interviewee's research considered children's views in relation to those particular pathways. Alongside hearing about the interviewee's research, we also hear about the interviewee's point of view about the current state of the residential childcare system in the UK and what needs to be done to make improvements. Amongst other things, we consider subjects such as physical restraint, the English care review and the context around placing children in care. I found this interview thought-provoking and interesting. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Anne-Marie Day. Hi Anne-Marie, thanks very much for taking part in the podcast. So first question, can you tell me a bit about yourself and what your connection is to residential care in the UK? Yeah, sure. My name's Anne-Marie Day. I'm a criminology lecturer at Keele University. Um, my connection to residential care in England and Wales is mainly through research. Um, I have done, um, my PhD was on children um, in, res- well, it was children in care generally and their pathways into um, offending and understanding the children's voice about those pathways um, and giving the children, you know, kind of placing the research findings and recommendations um, solely around what the kids were saying but what we found was well what I found was that um, the vast majority of kids that I interviewed I think I interviewed 19 um, 17 ish were in residential care Um, and it's kind of backed up by a lot of um, national data as well which shows that you know older children who tend to get receive the attention of the criminal justice authorities tend to be predominantly in residential care quite a lot were in private providers um so yeah that was that was my phd and then after that i did um another research study looking at the um, pathways um, of of children in custody who were in care Um, and that was a Nuffield study with tim bateman and john pitt um, and we did a comparison of the pathways of children who'd been through the care system um, with children who were in custody, who hadn't been in care, just to look at what was unique about um, the children's own journeys. And we again interviewed the kids. We had a look at their case files. And we also spoke to practitioners just to get more of a general overview. Um, so that's kind of my main um research those are the two main projects that i've done since moving into academia yeah and so there's quite a kind of niche areas to look at what was it that i suppose prompted you to kind of think about those areas in terms of the pieces of research that you've done um it was a few things really um prior to coming into university land which is a very interesting almost parallel universe slightly detached from reality um i was working at the youth justice board um, for two years um, and I was the policy lead for um, children um, in care or care experienced children um, and I 
as I tried to move the policy direction forward in England and Wales, um, I became very frustrated, to be honest, um, at the lack of um, meaningful commitment, political commitment and will to tackle in this. Um, there was, as far as I could see, a bit of a research gap. There's a handful of people in, in England and Wales that are conducting research in this area. Claire Fitzpatrick, Julie Shaw, Joe Staines, just to name a few, Katie um, Hunter as well. Um, and I could see that there was a need to develop more of an evidence base. So I moved into that. Well, I'll, I'll do it myself then. And um, they're the ones that are bounced about from home to home. Um, they would come into our area. We wouldn't know about them. Um, they would be very chaotic. They they would be very, you know, not engaging with workers because they didn't trust them because they'd been so badly let down. And we would spend a long, long time building up trust with with a young person, um, putting a lot of time into them. And then they just get moved and, and <laughs> for like a minor incident in the home. And, and, and that's stepping back and looking at the progress that we've made and the progress that that young person had made would just all get kiboshed for one incident. And it would normally be something reasonably serious. They'd trash the room, they'd nick a staff member's car or something like that. But they'd still come a long way and they'd made a lot of progress. And it used to frustrate me. Um, a lot and and we saw it repeatedly so it's it's a number of a number of reasons really from kind of practice and policy as well um definitely that's that's really interesting in respect to your findings is there any kind of common themes you know with regard to your findings that really kind of just shine a light on something that needs to kind of change and if you can tell us a bit about that i think that'd be really quite interesting as well to to hear yeah, definitely. I mean, I've only just got round to writing up my PhD thesis and I've got hopefully got a couple of papers going to be published later in the year. But the, the main the main finding, if I could kind of summarise it in a couple of sentences, would be that, you know, being in being in care generally, but specifically being in residential care seriously disrupts a child's um, development of their identity of who they are and how they see themselves. And that causes major, major problems. Um, and some of the kind of themes of within that were along the lines of, you know, there are still many institutional features of care. They're not so much in the physicality of the placement. There's been a lot done to improve um, the physical presentation of, of a residential care home, definitely. But it's the more subtle interactions. It's the staff, the numbers of staff. It's the office. It's having to ask permission for things. It's the bureaucratic procedures. It's the many, many rules and regulations that the kids spoke about, which just permanently make them feel that they're not at home and that they're different in some way. Um, that then makes them feel that they want to get out of out of that environment because they don't feel they're just not being interacted with as they see themselves in terms of their own identity. And they go and seek the company of people where they feel they're able to be themselves, whether that's friends, peers on the street, whether it's running home, not running away, running home, because that's where kids always run to, they just want to go back home because they want to feel like themselves and how they see themselves. And then that typically, those those issues around those interactions typically then put kids in situations where they get criminalised. So you run away or you run home, police get called, police turn up, try and return you to an environment that you don't want to go to, 
what happens, public order, you know, police assault, they run off again. In it all, you know, lots of little things like that. Or you go on the streets and end up, you know, knocking about with friends who again make you feel like yourself. And, and, you know, you do things for your own sense of belonging, etc. And that can be in, include being involved in different behaviours, not just offending, but things that can make you vulnerable to sexual exploitation, drugs, lots of other things. So the main findings are around this issue of identity and how being in care can negotiate your identity in a way that can end up being quite harmful to you as a child. Yeah. I hope that makes it, sense. It's a bit theoretical, it, it, but no, no, it does, it does. And, and I think what I was kind of thinking about there was this, the the group of young people that you interviewed for your um, your, your research for the thesis. How many of them, you know, percentage-wise, were engaged in offending behaviour prior to coming into care? Have any idea of that? I don't know about percentages, and it's difficult because it was only nineteen kids, so there's no mm. kind of generalizability they were all being supervised by the youth offending team when I spoke to them some of them I'd say what did happen is some of them had been involved in offending before going into care some hadn't um, but what happened with all of them is that the, the challenges around the behavior escalated so even for those who had some minor criminal offenses before they went into care and particularly residential care it just went through the roof you know they were almost like they were kind of you know bumping along like that and then they go into care and it, you just see it kind of go like that skyrocket and then the kids you know maybe 50 50 i would say but i don't know you know who hadn't had any offending before and then go into care and then get dragged into the system um, and again you know the data says that actually then that you look at why children go into care and it's something like less than 10 percent really low that go into care because of their behaviour. They actually go into care not because of something they've done, it's because of neglect, abuse, etc. So actually why have we got so many such a small number of kids going into care for behaviour who then are, 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 are becoming involved in difficult behaviours. You can't just say it's the child and they have the same um risk factors children in care that those who offend, which is something that a lot of policymakers use to dismiss this issue, which always used to irritate me. Um, that's nonsense. There's something about the care environment that's an issue and we need to get to grips with that and understand it. Um, and that was my frustration with the youth, when I was at the Youth Justice Board. There was a reluctance to tackle this issue head on. Um, and I think it's because it's a problem that has been um, facing policymakers for decades. So it's almost like the elephant in the room. Let's just avoid it. You know, yeah. and and let's just not deal with it. Almost, it's 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 frustrating. Yeah, and then as we know, there's been care reviews kind of been happening in both, you know, two parts of the UK. So if you've got yep. Scottish care review, the independent yep. care review in Scotland, and then the promised report was published, and we've got a route map just to you know try and you know change the landscape within ten years, and then in England you've got the care review, which had also had been taking place really off the back of the Scottish care review it kind of highlighted mm. the need in England there's a lot of people that are indexing kind of like promoting uh, you know the need for a review in England and from mm -hmm. that Josh McAllister was the, the the guy that was kind of um, put in place to head that up and you know what I've seen in terms of the you know the there's been a, back, a backlash you know from from the recommendations of that particular care review 
What's mm. your thoughts on it uh, in respect to just based on what we've been speaking about? Yeah. Just change things up and make it more positive for for young people that might be heading to residential care and could be. Um, I think that it's it's a huge, hugely missed opportunity in McAllister View, from what I can tell. I think there's a lot of good intention there. Um, you know, the government, I mean, the English, I'll say the English government, when there's an issue, they announce a review. They have a number of recommendations. They ignore the recommendations to make the issue go away. That is, there's a lot of evidence of that. The Lamy review is a good one. Um, mm. You know, lots of great recommendations all ignored. The te you know, the Taylor review into youth justice. You know, he recommended to abolish the youth justice board. They made him the chair of the youth justice board. It's ridiculous. So. Whether or not they get followed is another issue and is a separate issue, but I was disappointed with it. I don't think it really got to grips with many of the issues. I think there's some good intentions in there around, you know, early intervention and prevention, more emphasis on that, a recognition that, you know, children typically, older children do typically go back home, so trying to keep children at home wherever possible. But, you know, removing the IRO, you know, mm -hmm. I was actually, when I was doing my PhD, I was actually thinking that role needs to be significantly strengthened right. and they don't have enough bite. And that actually, if the role of the IRO was a much more powerful role where they could hold, you know, really hold local authorities to account if they don't meet a child's needs and the child's voice was central to that, that could really have a, have a massive impact. So I'm a bit bemused by the removal of that role. And also, um, you know, the unregulated accommodation for 16 and 17 year olds, just ignored it. Now, if you're really serious about children um, and keeping them safe, then that's just a no brainer. You just stop that instantly and you look at providing the right quality care for children right up until the age of 18 and beyond. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so the kind of the extending of the care provision for all children as well, I think was, was completely, you know, wasn't tackled. And I just think, um, you know, we typically deal with older children who, you know, and the care system often isn't massively equipped to deal with. So I think that it's a missed opportunity. I think that there's much more could have been um, utilised around Carly and Fermin's work with contextual safeguarding as well. And, you know, really dealing with where kids are at and, their, and, and this is older children and, and how to keep them safe within their chosen context and not just in the home environment. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I don't. I don't think it will, and 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 that's even if the recommendations get followed. But it's a shame because it was described as one of these once in a generation reviews. We've been calling for it for ages, and you know, it to me, it 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 lacks a lot of bite, and it's it's a missed opportunity. That's my opinion. Yeah. So, to, uh, comparable to the Scottish review, it was very quick. You know, com compared to the Scottish review, yeah. Scottish review had a lot of. Mm. The research attached to it, you know, it was really, really yeah. robust. Yeah. Um, and we'll see, you know, again, there's a lot to be, you know, thinking about in terms of the progress of that as well. Keeping a real, real eye on it. I always make a comparison to the the Scottish uh, mm. uh, re um, report, Higher Aspirations, uh, Brighter Futures, that was published in respect to residential care. Yeah. And uh, really that that that's has been put on a shelf, you know, uh, in the, the Scottish National Care Review really kind of took over for that. So... There might be a risk that that may happen. It'd be a real shame to 
those with lived experience and also people who are involved in, in, in the sector as well. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking, just magic one time, I suppose. Yeah. What do we need to do to, to you, know, su- you know, prevent or, you know, have a harm reduction approach to those children and young people that are in conflict with the law? What do we do to minimise that? What do we need? Within the care environment, do you mean, or yeah. just more generally? Yeah. Within oh, care? Both, both, both. I would say both. I think, I mean, what kind of came out of the research from the kids I spoke to is they knew full, they knew what kind of placement that they needed mm-hmm. to, to, that would help them and not hinder them. Um, and I would, and it wasn't, you know, they didn't want the moon on a stick. They, they wanted something that was perfectly reasonable. And there was one girl I actually interviewed who, who the local authority had tried every provision you could think of. She kept offending. She was getting up to no good. She was vulnerable. And in the end, eventually, and this and this is the problem, they only ever speak to the young person and, and look at what they want when they've run out of other options. It Maybe let's try this first. They spoke to the, the young person, they spoke to her and said, right, what what is it that you need? So she, she said she needed a single unit where she lived on her own, no male staff, and she wouldn't go into why, but that should be the end of it. No male staff. Um access to the internet and a phone she wanted to be out of area but she knew where she wanted to be where there was a certain college da, 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 da. and the local authority did that and they funded it and she did really well because she needed to feel safe she needed to have access to opportunity and she needed to feel in control of her own immediate environment um, and i think the cost of that yeah it wasn't cheap but if you compare it with what they'd spent trying to multiple things over the years it wasn't it wasn't massively out in terms of the difference. So I think just asking the kids right at the start, what what would work for you? You know? Now they may say something unrealistic like, I want to stay at home, and you're like, Well, look, you can't because of X, Y, and Z. But what would be the next best thing? And and actually if they're invested in where they're staying and they have a say in the design of it, yeah, it's gonna cost more potentially, but in the long run, it's probably potentially a lot of savings because they may be less likely to be drawn into the criminal justice system, um, etc. So I just think giving giving the kids more, much more of a say from the start, and mm-hmm. and it being that meaningful partnership approach with the young person, um, they they won't be used to that. And and just the fact that somebody's investing in them and what they have to say, you know, why not try it and just see what difference it makes? I, I'm fairly confident that. You know, with most kids I've worked with, and I'm sure you, you'd experience this, Joe. if you just give them that little bit of respect and you just, mm-hmm. you know, allow them to feel that they've actually got some sense of control over their own lives, they're far more likely to um, make wherever they're staying a success because they've got some ownership of it. And again, it links mm-hmm. to that identity again, doesn't it? You know, it, it's yeah. something that they've been involved in designing. Um, yeah. I think that would... It obviously wouldn't answer all the questions, but I think that would go a long way. So much more tailored, individualised approach. Um, obviously, more money would be needed, more funding. But I still think in the long term, the cost savings would be there. So for mm-hmm. me, that would be, you know, a lot of these kids have been in the system a long time. They know what works and what doesn't. You know, they're kind of old heads on, in, you know, in terms of their experience. So, you know, let's let's get them much more involved in it. Yeah, and I'm just kind of thinking back to early intervention. So in Scotland, you've got getting the right for every child. It's been out since, I think, 2009, 
Mm. And in Scotland, you'd, sorry, in England, you'd, every child matters. I think that's a comparable mm. uh, at the same time. So uh, they both talk about early intervention, you know, and, yeah. and you know, working with, you know, working with families, mm. very, you know, from, basically yeah. from, from cradle to grave, <laughs> using that yeah. phrase. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like, if we can do that and we use services, you know, at the right time. So, for example, residential mm. care could be used earlier in partnership with families in yeah. terms of a kind of hybrid type approach yeah. uh, and take the edge of crisis before like, foster yeah. care or bringing came back to kinship care. So yeah. I think, you know, that that's part of the solution is, is, yeah. is been a bit more intelligent around how we use uh, provision uh, yeah, yeah. and save, save our fortune. Yeah, a hybrid, um, hybrid approach right. would be, you know, for early intervention would work really well. And, and it's yeah. picking up on the problems with with families and children much, much earlier, because we, I mean, what we found with the kids I spoke to is that the behaviour difficulties of the child first started in primary school. But actually, if at that point there was a wraparound provision that went into the home and gave the support within the home that the child and the family needed, a vast majority of those kids wouldn't have ended up in care. Because actually, for a lot of them, it was domestic abuse. A lot of them, it's really, really high correlation. A lot of them, there was domestic abuse going on in the family home. And I, they didn't tell me that in interview. That was when I went and looked at their case files. None, I think one disclosed um, out, of, out of the 48 interviews I did as part of the Nuffield project. Out of the 48 young people, including those that weren't in care, about 45 had domestic abuse going on at home. It was really, really high. So actually, so at that point, there was, I mean, there's, there's a model for, in primary schools, um, having co-located social workers, family support workers based within the primary school. And I don't just mean one allocated to several schools. You know, what about having a team of staff based within the home? But at that point, instead of looking at the behaviour and labelling the child, and this is part of the identity stuff, labelling the child according to that behaviour, what if we went into the family with the right support, so it's not too interventionist and so on, and started giving support at that point and seeing what's really going on? What how many of those families would be saved from their children going into care, etc., because they were given the right support. And then, like you say, making more use of that hybrid approach around, you know, do we need, you know, a more flexible, fluid approach where the kids maybe spend some time away and, you know, we can, you know, when there's hotspots, trigger points, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, definitely, there's, there's, there's loads that could be done. Just yeah, up in Northern, Northern Europe, Germany, for example, uh, social pedagogy used that you know, that perspective to support children and families and residential care is not used that often in Germany in terms of the way that we would see residential care and residential child care and it's more kind of home care. So it's like yeah. pedagogues getting the family home. So if you can just think about home carers in regard to how they look after the elderly in their own homes, yeah. it's a similar approach whereby, um, you know, home carers, but pedagogues highly trained Go in and support families in the family home, you know, and I, I think that'd be worth looking at as well, you know, to see if we can maybe try and shape something like that yeah. in Scotland and, and in England as well. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking again, going back to your research, future research, where do you think the gaps are? Do you think, which are, you know, where, where would you like to um, conduct research around the next time? Oh, I'm not, I'd love, I mean, we need to be looking at these 16 and 17 year old unregulated placements. We really need to be looking at them 
Um, so again, magic one time, you know, it'd be great to do an ethnographic study and actually go and just basically spend days in one of those placements and just observe what goes on. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm fairly certain that, you know, that the risk of these kids would be um, that they're exposed to them and, 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 and so on would be quite telling and would be quite, quite pr provoking in terms of um, a policy response. Um, so I think lifting the lid on that a little bit more because despite our attempts to say that, you know, these unregulated placements for children, 16 and 17, shouldn't happen, it's being ignored. Um, so we need to go and look at the evidence as to why we're concerned and build up that evidence base because often evidence can't be as comfortably ignored, potentially, as, as, as those of us who campaign for change are jumping up and down about it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think something along those lines, and I think you know it'd be great to it'd be great to be involved in you know working with someone locally and 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 setting up some kind of pilot study where we tried a different approach, like you know that combined a bit of what we're both describing, Joe, and we could maybe see does it actually work? Does it make a big difference? Can we take some of these European models um, and 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 apply them to the UK context? And what difference does it make? Um, you know, so getting funding and getting a number of local authorities on board, you know, that would be great. That would be really great. The unregulated, unregulated placements you, you spoke about, because in Scotland, as far as I know, we haven't got any. Now, I might be wrong, but I'm quite confident to say that. And what do they kind of generally look like? Do you get any kind of background on, you know, the kind of the ins and outs of it? Or, it varies, um, but it, it basically means that kids 16 and 17 don't have to stay in somewhere that kind of is meets the standards required for children under 16 around foster care and residential care so it can look like anything and that's the worry um and there was already loopholes in the system prior to them recently relaxing it even more to allow this i mean some of the kids i interviewed were being moved from caravan to caravan in a holiday park and it was being called um their holiday time and as long as they were moved every 28 days, it was a holiday placement or something. And they were basically being moved around caravan sites in Lancashire and Yorkshire. Really disgraceful exploitation of private companies trying to, trying to make money out of these kids. So that was going on anyway. But it's things like that. Caravans, B&Bs, mm. um, you know. In, you know, obviously supported accommodation, there's things like that that are, that are more appropriate, but then it can allow children and adults to potentially be staying in the same building. Um, I mean, I remember years ago when, again, these unregulated placements for 16 and 17 year olds were allowed then before they tightened it up and now they've relaxed it. We had children staying in a bed and breakfast at the end of the road from where we worked. Um, 16 and 17 year olds with adult offenders, you know, teenage girls. And, and the local authority was placing them there because it was the only bed available. And then they were, we were supervising them and we were like, look, we won't place our children there. Why are you? It's not safe. You've got adult male offenders staying in the same place as 16 and 17 year old teenage girls. Mm -hmm. How can that be safe? But they were just like, because of the accommodation issue, we've got a bed. Thank God for that, you know. 
so it can look like anything it can it can be a, a vast range of things but because they're not regulated um that standards tend to drop yeah. not in all placements and and it, it and they tend not to be as safe and that's mm -hmm. concerning because if you're a child you're a child regardless up until the age of 18 and that's what the united nation convention on the rights of the child states but it doesn't seem to be what the english welsh government seems to abide by basically uh-huh <laughs> so just come back just kind of, uh, on kind of um different settings and for people that are listening they might not be kind of you know aware of the youth justice system in England is different from the youth justice system in Scotland. And when a, a child comes into conflict with the law in England, the options in terms of, you know, support and supervision and maybe, you know, restriction of liberty or, you know, being in a locked environment, what's the options that are there for the, you know, for the English local authorities? I mean, kids that have offended, there's more and more children in England and Wales being diverted away from the youth justice system now, which is good. There being kind of um, lots of opportunities for professionals to really question whether it's appropriate for them to be criminalised. OK, and mm -hmm. and that particularly has been brought in because we see children in care being criminalised for quite minor behaviours in residential homes that shouldn't be. So that's led to a reduction. And that's good because then the local authority has to tap the children into other support that isn't criminal justice related. But for those that then go on to be criminalised and get a conviction, um, you can basically, depending on what offence you've committed, obviously you can you can receive anything from a community sentence right through to custody. Um, the numbers of children in custody in England and Wales have come down quite a lot, especially because of COVID. We're in the kind of low hundreds now. Um, but they're predicted to double over the next few years because of the backlog of cases and, and, and there's a prediction that rates of offending are going to increase. Mm -hmm. um, and when children are sentenced to a community sentence, they, they receive support from the local youth justice team. It tends to be good support um, that, you know, is kind of tailored to meet their needs, etc. Um, the big kind of bugbear with England and Wales at the moment is the um, provision around custody. Um, there's three places you can be sentenced to if you get custody. There's a Young Offenders Institute, um, prison, it's an adult prison that's, that had very few adaptations made, um, and that's if you're 15 and above. Um, about 70% of kids are in, are in prisons. Um, then you can be sentenced to a secure training centre. Um, although I don't think many are left standing now, most have been shut down because of um, abuse <laughs> of children a whole other story um, or a secure children's home and that is kind of more of a, um, a care environment that's run by the local authority and is staffed by um, social workers teachers etc rather than prison mm -hmm. officers which which staff the YOI so one of the big campaigns in England and Wales is that no children should be sentenced to young offenders institutions um, so they've the government have committed to replacing young offenders institutions with secure schools, but it's taking years and they're dragging their feet. So we don't know what's happening with that. Um, but, you know, we look to Scotland and see that you guys have committed to having no children in prisons. And we think that's fantastic. And, you know, if you can do it there, why can't we do it here? Um, mm -hmm. Quite a significant number of kids in custody could actually be supervised in the community. Um, so actually, if we release those kids and gave them the right support, those that are left, 
um, why can't we afford to put all those insecure children's homes with the cost saving we make from those in the community? There's ways around it. We just need to, again, think creatively and be much more fluid in our approach. But doesn't win votes, does it? Doesn't win no, votes with the Tories. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I, and I, I noticed in the press just the last couple of, last week, <coughs> excuse me, the Vinnie Green uh, down in Gloucestershire, which is a, a children's residential school, uh, come under some criticism in terms of physical intervention uh, getting used, you know, well, you know, basically physical abuse. You know, I, I you know yeah. as, as it's in, named in the press. Mm-hmm. Um, why do Why do you think? You know, do you think staff looking after kids in that type of environment have got the, enough support to look after the kids, or why Why do things end up like that? I mean, I think that there's been a big issue of the numbers, a number of restraints in young offenders institutions, and that they've gone up a lot. And there's, there's there was a review. 2020, I think it was, again by Charlie Taylor, which looked at basically really restricting the use of pain-inducing restraint, which, you know, is, is, is horrendous that we even allow it, but restricting it to when it's absolutely necessary, like to minim- prevent serious harm or something. Um, but again, you look at those environments and the prison environment is really, really harmful for children and really stressful. Okay, loads of research to support that it, it it's really difficult, it it can, you know, the staff don't have the right training to intervene with the children in the right way, to interact with them, to understand them. Um, and that can then create a difficult tension. Um, you know, the prison environment in of itself is not, is not suitable for children. Um, and that will also create, you know, how do children communicate? They communicate with behaviour. If they're unhappy in an environment, it will impact on their behaviour. That's kind of basic stuff. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why they struggle, they're in the wrong environment, it's the wrong staff. Um, but I also think that even so, we don't need to be using pain-inducing restraint. We can restrain children in other ways, which doesn't involve the administering of pain. Um, and again, if you've got the right staff with the right skill set and the right experience, often you can intervene with a child well before it gets to the point of physical restraint. Um, it's just about spotting the signs. Very often just using your brain, um, your communication, and it avoids it escalating. Um, I mean, I interviewed one young person and he, um, I actually asked him about the injury because it was unusual, but he had, you know, this kind of fatty bit of your hand here. He had that bit of skin. There was a big kind of hole in it. And I asked him about it and I was like, what is that? If you don't mind me asking. And it was, it was an injury that he'd sustained during a restraint. Now, what happened during the restraint was that um, he um, had been unlocked from his cell. I mean, even the fact we're talking about cells is horrendous, but he'd been unlocked from his cell to um, ring his mum. And as he'd kind of picked up his list of telephone numbers and made his way to the phone, another young person had stolen the list and ran off down, down the wing. So he chased after them, get the numbers back, then goes to the phone. The prison officer stops him and says, why are you running on the wing? Get back to yourself, right? And he says, no, I was just getting my telephone numbers that such and such stole from me so I can ring my mum. Get back to yourself. Are you refusing a direct order? So he said, yes. And then it's like, oh, they're refusing a direct order. You press the buzzer. All the officers come, restrain, drag him into his cell. Now, come on. 
use your brain. He wanted to ring his mum, yeah? Let him ring his mum. Why don't we speak to the young person who ran off with the numbers and say, you shouldn't be doing that. Get them, you know, and have a chat with them about it. But that was a situation that could have been easily resolved. And, and I heard so many examples like that where, again, the right skill set, using your own, you know, kind of brain <laughs> and mm-hmm. your own initiative could resolve these situations 99% of the time. And that, that yeah. to me was one example of many that is quite ridiculous that it ended up. And, and the injury was from him, his hand being forcibly shoved on quite harsh carpet. And it was a, a friction burn that had taken some of the flesh away from his skin. So you can imagine how painful that would have been. I mean, yeah. it would, you know, it would have been horrendous. Mm-hmm. But he didn't complain, didn't see the point. I complained on his behalf. Um, they did an internal investigation and didn't take any action. Um, so, yeah, that's basically it. I've got some... You know, this, that, that example in terms of that young person experiencing that type of kind of you know, trauma within a, a setting that's clearly not suitable for them. Yeah. is hard enough for us to listen to but we're not even there you know as in being there 24 7 so you can imagine what the young person's experiencing you know kind of psychologically and uh, it reminds me of, in a podcast i've done with a, a, a practitioner who's doing his master's at the moment yeah and he's doing it in the use of supervision and he yeah. kind of mentioned uh, a, a behavior management strategy um, or it's actually a behavior management approach called a therapeutic crisis intervention yeah. And uh, there's a new addition and basically it's got a lot around uh, you know like trauma and brain yeah. development and how it's okay to kind of essentially you know re- reduce the expectations that you've got for a particular young person in a particular situation. Yeah. And the matter for the user is just you know it's like tug of war. Just, it's okay to drop the rope. Yeah. And it, you know it's, it's these kind of things, these kind of examples, and these kind of pieces of training would be really useful for a number of <clears throat> professionals in different settings, including. Maybe the present the prison service. Yeah. We don't, yeah. We don't get kids, you know, get kids out of the, the prison service and into secure um settings if need if need be. Um listen, I always kind of just try and finish off by asking you know, somebody um uh, if you could go and give your younger self a piece of advice. My younger um, self. Yes, in respect to mm-hmm. uh, professional professional advice or whatever it might be that would really benefit you. Uh you know. In respect to where you are just now, but kind of, what advice would that be? That's given me. Um, I wouldn't have gone straight into academia, and I, I needed that that knowledge and that experience mm-hmm. of frontline practice. I think to be able to do the research that I do and get the understanding and respect of practitioners that I'm working with. Um, I think academia can often seem quite removed, and, and some academics, not all, can seem. You know, like they don't get it, and and that can cause a difficulty in terms of trying to do that research. So, um, I don't, I don't know what advice I'd give to myself. A problem <laughs> that's really unhelpful, isn't it? Probably no, just not. to, yeah, probably <clears throat> to get out of the adult adult criminal justice sooner and go into children uh, young maybe right. would would have been probably more more useful, and maybe not a law degree, but something mm-hmm. around social work probably would have benefited me more um but I, I didn't know what direction i was going in at the time so i just did a lot because yeah. i liked it yeah. that's <laughs> I interesting what so, I was so, doing. we didn't even cover that so you basically done a law degree yeah uh, and then probation officer adults right. and then moved to children um uh-huh. because i found it more interesting um and i found working with adults was good but by then 
so much of the damage was done that actually trying to affect that change was much more difficult so I wanted to work with children and families where you felt like you could have more creativity in youth justice and probation um, and also more chance of actually really affecting change so yeah maybe that would probably be something I'd, I'd advise myself to do that's a good more advice on kids yeah no oh, absolutely I mean it's been a pleasure talking to you um okay. I know that people in Scotland will be really interested in what you've been talking about and there's a lot of research as you know with you know, for example through CYCJ yeah, in Scotland yeah, definitely definitely and you know we look you know you guys might be frustrated with progress in Scotland but my god be grateful you're not down here um we get <laughs> we look to you guys and see the progress that you're making with the age of criminal responsibility etc and uh -huh. think you know why can't we do it and it's that it's that commitment from those in power to really affect change and listen to research and you guys seem to have a really good setup there um you know so hopefully you know we can we can try and take some of that encouragement forward and try and move things forward in, in England and Wales but obviously with the latest care review you know we'll yeah. we'll have to see but um yeah, yeah thank you for the opportunity to speak to you Joe I appreciate it not a problem Thank you to Anne-Marie for providing some of her insight into supporting children involved in the care system. I found this interview really interesting and I'm sure that you did too. I was particularly interested in hearing about the notion of contextual safeguarding and I'd be keen to hear more about that subject matter. If you would like to take part in the podcast, please get in touch and as always, please share this recent episode across your networks. Thank you.